0: Typically, in a four-man wall, we're going to get our midfielders involved in the wall. We want our defenders to be free. We want the defenders to be marking, uh, marking men up. Um, they're playing defense because they're our best defenders, and we don't want to put them in a position where they're pretty much just like cones. We want them to be active. We want them to be actively defending. And that's one of the main reasons we use our midfielders in the wall.
1: Good morning, and welcome to episode 217 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from baseball prospectus. I am Ben Lindberg, joined by Sam Miller. Uh, it is Wednesday, which is Email Wednesday, so you sent us a bunch of questions. We're going to answer some of them now. And uh, we only received one angry email about our, our Yasiel Puig episode. And actually, if I remember right, uh, when we talked about Puig in spring training, we received one angry email about not being critical enough of Puig at the time. We had, we had bought too much into his spring training stats. So we have one for and, and one against. So I guess that says well, impartial.
0: It's like that old saying, you can't please anybody ever of the time.
1: <laughs> yes, I think that's how it goes. Uh, we, <laughs> we did get a bunch of ratings and reviews over the weekend after I asked people to do that over the weekend. So I appreciate that. Thank you for those. And if you haven't done one yet, please consider doing one on iTunes as it helps us, uh, reach more listeners and, and stroke our egos. So, uh, you have, you've picked out some questions.
0: I sure have. So, uh, let's see. Uh, I think we're going to try to get to a bunch, um, with quick answers if possible, because there's so many good questions. And I think I'm also going to just start answering some of these on unfiltered Mm -hmm. because there are, uh, there are like a dozen or more questions a week that um, actually in, entertain me or um, make me curious about the answer, mm-hmm. and I want to answer more of them. So I think I'll probably start doing yeah. that. Uh, but I shouldn't. I, were, be, I shouldn't be making promises. If I were a
1: person, I would probably rather uh, hear us. I would rather read us write an answer to a question than hear us talk about it.
0: Yeah, especially given um, how bad we are. at <laughs> Right.
1: This, <laughs> That's uh, what I was getting at.
0: Yeah. Uh, So the first question is the one, though, that might be more in depth. And uh, it'll only be in depth if you have an answer. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you will, but it's up your alley. It's it's from Aaron. And it's a long question. So I'll read for a while. Uh, He says, um, uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, you asked recently, would a move by going to robot umpires affect batters or pitchers more because of the lack of skill uh, of pitch framing? I would argue that robot umpires would negatively affect the home team by decreasing their home field advantage. And then he goes out. He goes on to explain um, the theory that is in the book Scorecasting. Did you ever read Scorecasting?
1: No, I read uh, I read things that people wrote about it, but I did not read
0: You the book. yeah, I believe you edited a thing that people yes. wrote about it. So I'm gonna, I'm hoping that you'll remember that to some degree. Sure. Um, but the theory of, of scorecasting on home field advantage is that in baseball, the persistent 54% home field advantage um, is likely due uh, substantially to, if not entirely to, uh, the umpire effect, that umpires are more generous to the home team. Um, and so um, Aaron is, is saying that um, basically if you take away the umpire effect uh, which is shows up mostly in balls and strikes, um, you would take away the home field uh, effect. He says it becomes even more evident. There is a bias at different points in the game. They use the leverage index to examine called ball strikes. In non-crucial situations, the home and away teams get the same strike ball calls. But as the game situation becomes more crucial, the home team receives far fewer called strikes and more called balls than the away team. The strike shrinks for the home team and expands for the visitors in the The higher the importance of the game situation, the more that is evident. So um, do you have uh, thoughts about... I guess first I should ask, have have you looked at all at framing in home field advantage or framing in any sort of uh, factor that would affect uh, the umpire's calls besides um, ball count leverage?
1: Uh, I don't think so. No, I haven't looked to see... um... I, I've wondered whether the score of the game has has an impact, whether, I don't know, whether there's kind of a, a parallel to the, the compassionate umpire effect on a count where a batter who's behind in the count is is less likely to have a, call, to have a strike called on him, whether there's kind of a, a parallel for, for the team's score um, and whether a, a team that is trailing by a lot or something would would be less likely to have a strike called in it. I have not looked at that, and I don't recall anyone else having looked at that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then the second question is, do you think if we removed umpires we would remove the home field advantage?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I, home field advantage is such a complicated topic, and there's been so much research done on it, and it never really seems definitive, it's kind of hard to to isolate what exactly it is. Um, I mean, there's the theory that it has to do with just players having the, the support of their crowd and, and you know, being pumped up by being cheered uh, or the benefit of not being on the road and, and sleeping in your own bed and having your own food and whatever else comes with with being home, and of course, I mean, you know, knowing your stadium and taking advantage of it in that way. And that uh, an outfielder knows the fence, and he'll know how the ball will bounce off the fence, and be able to play a ball better, that sort of thing. Um, so I feel like a lot of the, the potential explanations for home field advantage would still would still apply if there were no umpire. I think
0: um, one of the things that. Uh, I remember finding once when I looked at it, and I wouldn't uh, purport to say that I looked at it in any sort of comprehensive way, so I, I wouldn't stand by my conclusions or anything, but um, I, I remember f- uh, being surprised that the home field advantage didn't, in baseball, didn't seem to show up. Oh, in fact, uh, yeah, I looked at this uh, again recently as, as it relates to, to the postseason. I found that the, um, that the size of the home field didn't seem to increase. Uh, home field advantage, and that the fervency of the home field, uh, which uh, shows up, you would think, in the, in the playoffs, you would see a much more fervent home crowd, mm-hmm. also doesn't uh, affect the home field advantage. Basically, that the home field advantage in the postseason is identical to the regular season. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you, if it were the size of the crowd, if it were the umpire being swayed by the loudness and size of the crowd, then certainly a playoff team in a playoff situation would get a bigger bump than the Marlins in June. And yet that's not true. And so my suspicion while the while the uh, umpire effect makes sense and I, I would probably with without having looked at it in a great deal I would probably accept that it's it's part of the mix. Uh, my guess is that the home field advantage is persistent in ways that are that remain mysterious and if you took away this factor you would still see a, a fairly consistent Home field edge um, I mean the home field edge is is interesting partly because it's um, it's so consistent across uh, era um, across level um, and you know even to if I'm remembering right even largely across sports and so it makes you think that it can't be anything so simple as um, uh, you know uh, uh, Brian Rungi and what he's thinking about the guy sitting in section 103. Mm-hmm. Is Brian Runge? Uh,
1: yeah, I think so.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. I'm,
1: if you heard me typing, it's because I was trying to look up some stuff that Phil Birnbaum has written uh, about, about that book. Um, Bill bon- Bill, Phil Birnbaum is a, a really smart sabermetric writer. Uh, he, he writes at his own blog um, and does kind of critiques of, of sabermetric stuff. And he wrote a guest review for Baseball Perspectives of scorecasting and kind of looked into some of the claims that the authors made. And uh, so he goes over some of the stuff they do early in the book. And then he says some of the author's other findings, though, seem considerably less certain, especially their biggest topic, home field advantage, which is the only topic that covers two chapters. Uh, he goes into what he thinks causes home field advantage. He He said it's one of the biggest unsolved problems in sports analysis. He's... He's uh, people have looked at various factors and he says he doesn't think we have a great handle on where home field advantage comes from. So he addresses this referee bias, umpire bias argument, and he says, um, second, I tried to verify the baseball claim that the home field advantage is actually backwards in low leverage situations to check. I looked at all MLB um I looked at all MLB games from 1954 to 2007 and figured out the home slash road run differential in each inning. If the scorecasting argument is correct, you'd expect more home field advantage in the late innings, where clutch situations tend to cluster than in early innings, but the actual figures show the opposite trend. The biggest home field advantage came in the first inning, when the home team outscored the visitors by 18%. Um, And then the home field advantage is smaller later in the game uh so he concludes that that's kind of kind of iffy that 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 is something that's happening um Mm -hmm. i'm I'm looking because he also uh he wrote something (laughs) this is why i should probably look at at what questions you picked up before the show so i can do all my googling before um maybe you should you should go to the next question and i will i will Uh, stealthily look up some stuff
0: yeah i'm gonna talk the next one is uh is a quick one kyle asks uh he says i have a question concerning the average length of mlb games except rather than length being stated in hours and minutes i want to know how many outs the average baseball game has the simplest answer is probably usually 51 or 54 but i'd appreciate an answer with at least one decimal i think the answer depends on the run environment as fewer runs per game would increase the likelihood that the ninth inning would end with both teams having scored the same number of runs, thus increasing the average outs for extra inning games. Um, Do you, just real quick before I give the results, do you have a a hypothesis about whether uh, outs per game are going to be significantly affected by run scoring environment and in which direction?
1: Uh, I guess, mm, no. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right. Well, it's it's actually uh, as he as he suggests, and it's fairly significant. I looked at a thousand games this year, a uh, thousand games in two thousand, which is the highest offensive environment since World War Two, and I looked at average outs uh, in a thousand games since nineteen sixty eight, and uh, in fact, uh, there are fifty three point five. Sorry, excluding rainouts. By the way, I'm excluding rainouts because. Uh, they don't really skew things very much, but they're, they seem to be cheating. So, uh, excluding rainouts in 2013, there are 53.64 outs per game. Uh, in 2000, there were 53.34, so a third of an out fewer. And in 1968, actually, there were an average of 54.25 outs per game. Mm-hmm. So that means that the average game. Now, obviously, it doesn't work this way, but the The average game went extra innings, if that makes sense. I mean, there were there were so many extra innings being played uh, because nobody could score a run uh, that there was actually more than nine innings being played on average, Um, which I guess is interesting because if you think about how many half innings, I mean, every uh, more than fifty four percent of games basically, if you since we're talking about the home field edge, don't complete nine innings, right? Don't mm-hmm. complete 54 outs. And so there's a, there's going to be a, a real bias toward being lower than that. Um, but in fact, uh, if you get the run scoring environment low enough, the games will just go on forever. Uh, of course that does not mean that games take longer because of more batters are batting in those games. So in case, uh, whatever this guy's name was, I, I, I've forgotten, uh, Kyle, in case Kyle wants to know, Uh, there were uh, one and a half more batters per game in 2000 than there were in 1968. And you figure more of those batters are going to come with other runners on base, which means that they're working out of the stretch and that there will also be more pitching changes uh, because pitchers can't get out since there are more changes. So uh, even though uh, there are fewer outs per game when runs are scored more, there is a longer game when runs are scored more, and so I don't know why you would want to state the length of games announced. outs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do wonder what Kyle is going to use this information for. I wonder if he's got some sort of sinister plan. <laughs> because I could not I could not necessarily come up with the motivation for wanting to know this, um, but I trust Kyle. Mm-hmm. I trust Kyle with his information.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Do you have an answer, or should I go on to the
1: next uh... one? I'm, I'm falling into a rabbit hole here, so go on to the next one.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, this one is from uh, Matt. And Matt says, I've been thinking about this idea since listening to your discussion on fielder positioning. What if MLB teams... Oh, goodness. I'm, I can't believe I'm reading this. What if MLB teams packed five to six players... <laughs>
1: You're reading this one.
0: <laughs> ...as close as possible to the batter... Forming a kind of wall that you often see in soccer-free kicks, the goal of the wall would be to knock down hits as they left the hitter's bat. The wall would make pitch recognition very difficult, especially if the wall is hopping up and down and you have a pitcher like Jared Weaver throwing from an extreme angle. The pitcher would have to adjust to throw through a narrow gap in the wall. Uh, B, is there a rule that forbids fielders from wearing special equipment? Olrude wore helmet on the field, so why not full catcher's gear for wall members? Do fly balls leave the bat at such an angle that the wall would have no hope in blocking them? And hitters would probably be unnerved breaking their concentration at the plate. And, you know, I think that when Ben and I read this, we did some soul searching um, (laughs) because we realized that this is the podcast that we're doing. Um, This is not a... Baseball question, so much as it's a kickball question, <laughs> uh, and Ben worries that if we go down this route for long, eventually we will be a football podcast, um, which is not what either one of us wants. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to say that this is—it's uh, ludicrous. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's clearly unsafe to get close enough. I think you would—you would—it would—you would quickly be hit with bats if you got close enough to block the ball and. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's a baseball. It's not, it's a baseball. It would kill you. Uh, now here's the, the, the response that I have that is semi, semi serious. Uh, what if just one guy stood between the pitcher and the hitter in the direct path of the pitcher's, um, uh, release point and the plate? Mm -hmm. And what if he just dodged? You've got to figure in that case it would be extremely difficult for the batter to pick up the ball if he dove on the ground I mean sure he would he would he would certainly get hit by some balls that were hit at him and he, he would probably die as well <laughs> um, but let's say he figured out a way to avoid the dying um, do you think that there's anything illegal about standing 30 feet from the pitcher's mound between the pitcher and the batter and and, just and basically doing something distracting yeah obscuring the batter and then just as the pitch comes you dodge I mean I Obviously, it's hard to dodge a pitch if you don't know that it's coming. But if you know exactly when it's coming and it's going to be coming right at you, if you could just sort of time your your dodge mm-hmm. in such a way, you could. You, you might even be able to work on this with the pitcher, <laughs> so that you'd be very good at dodging. You could time it just right, uh-huh. and then you just sort of dive, you know, dive headfirst right. away from the batter. So, you know, if you get hit with a ball, it, you'd probably get hit on the on the tush. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it seems like that could really disrupt the batter. Now, I assume this is the sort of thing that if you had this brilliant idea it would be outlawed yes, immediately. <laughs> uh, about yeah it would be outlawed by the second pitch yeah. and if it weren't outlawed then you'd be hit in the face by the next pitch that you saw mm-hmm. in the plate i don't think that anybody would go for this except for you know maybe the dodger but uh, legal do you think and and uh, effective do you think uh, I,
1: I can't think of a reason why it wouldn't be legal i, I haven't i haven't dug into the rule book to see but it sounds legal. I mean, you can you can put fielders. Are you
0: allowed to play? Are you? Is a fielder? There's no line behind which the fielder has to play that you know. Not that
1: I know of. Um, I mean, yeah. If it were perfectly timed, I I guess that would certainly be effective. It would be like the ultimate deceptive delivery because you wouldn't see the delivery.
0: Right. I <laughs> so... mean, it would be devastating. <laughs> it seems like it would just be absolutely devastating. Nobody could. Nobody could hit a pitch that they didn't see until it was right. 40, 40 feet yeah. from them. Yeah, that would be... And, and I mean, <laughs> if you did it right, you might even be able to... Like, the pitcher might be able to play with different arm angles, and the batter would never be able to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it, would be, it would be something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, with the wall idea, that if you actually set up a wall, how does the pitch get to home plate?
0: Well, the pitcher would have to throw between the wall. the the, in this case the wall would in the in this in the situation offered uh by uh matt was it matt um the the wall's primary purpose would be to block to block hits it would be very much like like the kickball strategy where you just you charge and then you throw your body at the ball basically Mm -hmm. now and and i think he says that the the I, I think he's pointing out that the side the side benefit of unnerving the batter and, and maybe disrupting his his line of vision but but basically the wall would be in order to block balls co- going out mm-hmm. um I'm talking about doing something right, specifically right. and what if uh, like also what about this what if you were what if you had the shortstop just stand directly behind the pitcher's <laughs> release point and just like jump up and down? Uh-huh. And, and, and sort of block the batter's eye with a white uniform that, that probably wouldn't be allowed either. Yeah. And if, I, I don't I don't feel like that would be as useful and you would have a player out of position. That's the other thing right You're, Well you could in, I mean in this,
1: you'd, I guess you'd take the left fielder or something.
0: You'd have to take yeah, you'd take the left even in my in my theory too in my idea you'd have you'd lose a fielder. Yes. So if the batter could hit anything, you'd be toast you don't yes,
1: which it would probably be worth it for that. Uh, I mean with the wall idea, I was thinking, what if the pitcher just kind of throws a pop up that comes down directly over home plate? It just uh-huh. it just throws it sky high. It it drops vertically but, on home plate, in front of the wall. Right. Uh,
0: yeah. So I just don't think that you can have a wall for blocking baseballs because baseballs are going to kill you. Yes. I, I don't. I just. I don't understand. I mean, like, why not have the fielder stand on the plate? And so the batter can't swing <laughs> because your body is blocking the play. Well, that would, I mean,
1: yeah, that would be interference.
0: I don't know. They say there's a rule against catcher's interference, mm. there's no rule against shortstop's interference. <laughs> so far as I can tell, the rule book is silent on whether the shortstop can interfere with the batter's swing by putting his body in between it. Hmm. So I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Now, so I think the big flaw with the, the, the block, with these, with the dodgeball guy is that the catcher would be at the same disadvantage and therefore, The umpire would be hit by pitches and the umpire, you just can't, you can't be hitting the umpire with pitches or you'll get nothing from him. I'm pretty sure that the umpires would, would make it their personal mission to destroy you (laughs) if you, if you let pitches uh, go straight into their face mask. Yes. So probably not a starter of an idea. Matt's from Germany, by the way, and I'll leave it to all of you to be thoroughly unsurprised. (laughs) Uh, all right. Shall we do another one?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, uh, this might be the last one. We'll see. Um, Timothy, um, writes in a May 22nd article, um, Russell Carlton writes that the DH is the most highly paid position. Hasn't effectively wild research already uncovered that there are no more than three players in the AL who play exclusively dh my point is that the dh isn't truly the highest paid position because there are not enough people playing the position to adequately judge i feel like there are no mainstream voices in baseball who are vehemently opposed to what the dh represents on the other hand there are a multitude of baseball people who like the dh or feel a general apathy towards including the dh in the nl my goal is to end the dh from tim that was a that that email took a sharp turn <laughs> yes. midway through and i'm just going to say never really right off the that
1: why he doesn't like the why dh why he was...
0: No, he, well, I think he wants us to, to not like – I think right. he's hoping that we'll make his case for him yeah. or something like that. But I, I do just want to say, first of all, that I don't appreciate you trying to start a fight between us and Russell. Uh, <laughs> Russell is, I would say, the intellectual, if not the spiritual godfather of this podcast, mm-hmm. and we're not going to be drawn into this. Um, so I will note in uh, Russell's defense, because Russell can, can do no wrong, that uh, those, uh, the, the DH is actually probably more expensive – uh, in great fact, even though you're arguing, Tim, um, because DHs tend to be older, they tend not to be pre-ARB players, they tend to be guys that have been acquired after their sixth year, and therefore they're making real salaries. So I believe that the uh, amount of money spent in the DH spot, whether it's by exclusively DH players, or whether it's by guys who are platooning at DH, or whatever the case may be, is more expensive. Um but I don't actually want to defend the DH or not defend the DH. I hate talking about the DH as Tim, even in his subject line, says, beware DH discussion ahead. Uh, nobody likes to talk about the DH at this point. Um, I, I do just want to note, though, that it is interesting because um, the, anytime that there is some sort of controversial hot topic um, like, uh, well, anything, there's there it seems that the controversy goes one of two directions. One is... It simmers for a long time. Uh, Some sort of 50-50 parity develops on either side of the issue. It becomes extremely partisan. And it doesn't change, and that controversy lasts for a long time. And I would say an example of that would be uh, Roe versus Wade, where um, we're generally not much less divided, if if any less divided, now than in 1973. And that's not an issue that's going away anytime soon. Meanwhile, there are other political issues where uh, the fighting goes for a little bit and gradually one side starts to get um, more power. And then it, the issue becomes how far will it go? Because it's clear that you know that issue is has taken hold, that it has gotten a majority. And then it then becomes simply a matter for the minority position of, of stopping it from going uh, further than they want it to go, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you can think of political issues that would fit that description. Um, and DH, I, w- I would say that for a long time I didn't think that there was going to be this, uh, uh, the, the movement. I thought it would stay pretty divided for a long time. When I was growing up, it never occurred to me that DH would go to the NL, and it didn't really occur to me that the DH would ever be abolished, although maybe that was kind of what I sort of hoped for as a child for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's clear that that's not going to happen anymore. When was the last time you heard anybody talk about abolishing the DH?
1: Uh, never. Yeah, not really. Not, it just doesn't happen. I mean, serious, that's a serious professional it, writer.
0: Yeah, it's just abs- it's just completely been accepted I think that um, that the that the that the floor, the DH floor is one league and the ceiling is two leagues. And now it's like the fight is really if anything it's more about like how long can anti-DH people hold off and uh, how many more years of the NLAL uh divide will there be? But I mean it's clearly gonna happen and uh the momentum is 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 uh, is sort of unstoppable and, and i'm not sure what caused that it feels to me like a fairly recent shift that maybe in the last seven or eight years mm-hmm. um the momentum just sort of picked up just enough steam that you kind of quit thinking about it as a as a as a 50 50 divide mm-hmm.
1: uh okay so if i can sort of synthesize the reading that i've tried to do um, while recording this podcast uh, There has been Research into into The, the home and road Umpire effect um, John Walsh in the 2011 Hardball Times annual found that Home plate umpires favor home teams In their pitch calling by 0.8 Pitches per game um, Which is significant uh, There have been a couple studies at beyond the box score By Brian Mills and Dan Turkenkoff That looked at, at similar things and I think maybe found smaller effects, but still significant effects. Uh, so Phil Bernbaum, the guy I was talking about, kind of went looking for, for something that would be unaffected by the umpire to see whether, whether, it, whether the home field advantage can be entirely explained by, by the umpire calling pitches differently. Uh, and,
0: and just just to note it, that that's been an approach that people have done in other sports too, where it's a little easier to find those things. Yeah. And they've usually found the effect even in 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 events that like that are completely independent of the umpire.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah. So right. Like, go ahead. Like, like I, I think, f- uh, yeah, there's something in, in basketball that. Feels yeah, like,
0: like like errant passes or yeah, something like or,
1: that. Uh, yeah. Um, or foul foul shooting or free throw shooting or something. Um, So Phil looked at wild pitches, which he felt would be sort of independent of umpire. He, he kind he controlled for count in case it's more likely to throw a wild pitch in certain count. And you're more likely to be in a certain count because the umpire is, is calling a less favorable zone for you. So he found that, that there is a home field advantage in wild pitches, um, that, that visiting pitchers throw more of them. So he felt like that was, uh, Not really something that would be that affected by umpires. So there's this long comment thread that I've been trying to skim uh, on that post, which I guess I'll link in the the podcast post at BP. Uh, He was going back and forth with Mike Fast. uh, And Mike had some interesting thoughts on that. He said, I wonder if what we are counting as umpire bias, and this is kind of what you're saying, if what we're counting as umpire bias here doesn't also include catcher and pitcher skill in targeting and framing the pitch. We have good reason to believe that umpires call the strike zone relative to the catcher's target If catchers do better at taking advantage of this at home and pitchers do better at hitting that target Just off the corner when they are at home We could see a home road change in the strike zone Even if umpires were entirely consistent in how they called the zone Not consistent in terms of a fixed size spatial boundary But consistent in their methodology of judging the player performance Where the change in player performance is what drives the changing size of the zone Uh, And so... Phil is kind of skeptical then about uh, why framing would be better or why pitchers would be more able to hit their spots. Um, he says, My unscientific opinion is that framing the pitch is something that wouldn't vary between home and road since it's more decision than a physical attempt. Uh, that is, he wouldn't expect a catcher to try to be framing a certain way but fail to do so just because he isn't good enough today. Uh, and then... Mike uh, and this is the last thing I will read says um, I will be the first to say I don't have a good feel for differences between home and road Uh, However on the topic of strike zone maybe I can add something I see three basic components to be executed by the players Catcher sets the target, pitcher delivers the pitch at some location relative to the target And catcher receives the pitch into his glove Here's how I speculate that home field advantage could affect each of those three pieces Number one The catcher is probably relatively unaffected by home field advantage in his ability to place the glove where he wants, but he might very well be affected in his decision-making about what the right place is to put the target in the first place. Whether it's being more rested by sleeping in his own bed or feeling more confident because the fans are cheering his pitcher or he's more likely to be working with a lead, he may make more correct decisions about how to gain a few extra strikes for his pitcher. I'm not sure how one would measure that. Uh, Two pitchers may have better mechanics at home such that they'd have better control over where the pitches go This is probably measurable and three the catcher's mechanics for receiving the pitch may be sharper at home He may be more competent about how the ball will bounce off the dirt If he has to block the pitch or other factors that help him to be more relaxed as he receives the pitch Anecdotally umpires receive uh, react poorly on giving strikes when the catcher is reacting to his pitcher rather than seeming to be in control it's possible to observe from video that catchers mechanics in receiving pitches, but doing that on a large scale is probably impossible. Short of that, I don't know how to measure this. So those are good thoughts by Phil Birnbaum and, and Mike Fast from a couple of years ago on the topic. I will link to that post and some of the other research, but uh, I guess the consensus is it's really tough to say.
0: Well, it usually is. Yes. So uh, thank you, Aaron and Timothy and Matt and Kyle for your questions. And thank you for everybody else. And hopefully we'll get to some of them in writing. And uh, certainly we'll get to the next batch of questions in a week. So send them to podcast at email dot That's all right. <laughs> podcast at baseball dot com. Yes. And we'll be back tomorrow.